we ended up spending all the cash at bank because you know that a lot of fund is coming and you had all these investments that you had to make. Mm. I'm a Hindu. So I actually go to a temple and stuff. So there is one religious temple very close to my house. So I went there, I offered prayers. And right on, when I was coming back to my city, Hyderabad, I get a message saying that, hey, I'm ill and I'm not going to invest in the company. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Today's episode is sponsored by the Valuation Masterclass Online, the complete proven step-by-step -step online course to guide you from novice to valuation expert. Podcast listeners can claim your amazing 35% discount by going to myworstinvestmentever.com slash deals. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guests, Sampath Malini. Sampath, are you ready to rock? I'm ready to rock and roll, Andrew. <laughs> Let's do it. I really have already enjoyed our conversation, and, and I'm very interested in your business, as I mentioned. So let me introduce you to the audience. Sampath is the founder, CEO of Intandemly, a successful startup which helps organizations execute account-based sales through their software. Bootstrapped and formed in 2017, Intandemly has been profitable since year one. Congratulations on that. Today, <laughs> today, more than 200 organizations from 10 countries use Intandemly to generate sales in five figures. Sampath is an MBA from Indiana University of Pennsylvania with an obsession for entrepreneurship sales and salsa. Okay, that's cool. Just <laughs> listen in to episode 126, where you can meet Mario Knopfel, who is also an avid dancer. Sampath, please take a minute wow. and fill any further tidbits about your life. Well, see, I think, you know, I, hi guys, you know, this is Sampath from Intendably. And see, I basically come from a very small city in India, and I am dyslexic. And for some reason, formal education really never helped me. So it's only after my education, my real education started, and that was in sales. So that's a small tidbit to start with, and I think we have a far way to go. Oh, exciting. That's interesting because, you know, sometimes when you start your career, sales is a very tough place to start. How was it for you when you started in the area of sales? Is it something that just came natural to you, or was it something that you had to kind of really, really work on? Well, I think I would say it was 50-50. I mean, part of it came in very natural to me in terms of sales. But again, I think if you don't train yourself, if you don't get a coach, if you don't get a mentor and kind of up your game, I mean, talent takes you only till one part. After that, I think you have to constantly train yourself to get better. I just want to, before we get into the, the main question, I still, I'm, I'm so interested in your, in your startup and in your software. Maybe you could just yeah. give the audience kind of a, a one minute, you know, summary of what you're doing and who is it suitable for? Sure. I'll actually just go ahead and tell that. So, see, we are a company which helps organizations execute account-based sales. So I'm sure a lot of you must have heard about account-based marketing where you pick key accounts and invest all the marketing efforts towards those particular accounts. So when I looked out into the market, I realized that you know only very big organizations were able to execute this because you need multiple systems, you need access to data, you need to perform ads. 
I thought, why couldn't this be done for one man company till a mid-sized company effortlessly? I wanted to genuinely solve this problem. And that's how, you know, we came out with an account-based sales software where you get access to data, you get an inbuilt CRM, and you also have an engagement module where you can run plays into your targeted account. Fantastic. And if, if someone runs a small business and they implement it, the benefit for them, I guess, is that each morning they, they turn on the software and they, they know the actions to take or they have some help because information's coming into them or what is it that they get from that when they put it into action? Yeah, see, now if you're a small business, I'm sure you know you do not have the money to invest in marketing. So what is your primary goal? You want to identify which companies which would fall under your ideal ICP, that's the ideal customer profile, mm. and you just want to go after them. So there is a module called as identification in our software where you just click on identify and give the parameters and the system will give you the list of companies which fall under your ICP. And you can take them, you can run sequences, you can run plays so that you're giving a hyper-personalized appeal to all the targeted accounts which fall under the criteria of you doing business with them. Wow. I think that's powerful and I'm looking forward to learning more about that. And I think we'll have links in the show notes. So for anybody out there that's looking for a solution like that, just go to the show notes and click on the link and learn more. But now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. 100%. See, basically, I think it's very hard to pick one story, Andrew, because I at least have 90 to 190 of them. Those are the kind of mistakes and worst investments that I made. But since the theme of the show is to pick one worst investment that I made, maybe I'll just maybe give you a little story as to how these kind of, how I made the bad investment. So as I told you, you know, I actually come from a very small city in India and very humble beginnings. And before starting in tandemly, I worked in two jobs and, and both those jobs were completely in sales. But it was in my second job, I actually got my aha moment that, you know, hey, because I was always in B2B sales, I felt there was a need for an affordable account-based sales software for SMBs. And if I can help them execute high quality targeted outreach to customers, I would be making an impact. So my then boss and me actually formed in tandem. That means my second job's boss and myself formed. And so he also went on to become my co-founder. So it was great. You know, we formed the company, we have the founders and we had no money. So that's when, you know, and I had the idea of the platform. So that's when, you know, I went around knocking doors and I told them, I started speaking to a lot of potential prospects telling them that, you know, if you have sales and marketing teams, I'm going to build you an alignment meter. I'll get an account focused to to these teams and you'll be having a higher ROI. I think I met 20 companies and out of the 20 companies, three people loved the story and they said, didn't they'd love to have the software. And I was very upfront and open to them. I told them that, you know, I had no money. So what they did was I said, I just asked them to pay me upfront so that, you know, I could deliver the software. Mm. So that money from the three customers was my working capital to start in tandemly. So with that money, you know, we could get a couple of developers, got the idea cracking and, you know, we, we started developing the software. And as promised to those three companies, I got back with the software, which 
they're still customers even today so from then i think you know our first years it's been around 3 years that we started the company and you know it was like in our first year it was just all about you know going and meeting as many customers as possible and getting as many customers and that's how you know we were able to fund the company exactly year and a half we were in a pretty comfortable stage we i think we were roughly at around 50 to 70 customers and yeah around 50 to 70 customers around 20 people in team size some reason because of my videos or podcasts that i used to create there was a buzz in the market about intangibly and i had a lot of investors approaching me i would say at least five to six people this was exactly like one and a half year after our formation of the company mm. and we got a company valued and we got a 9 million valuation for our company wow so for not having any funds to come into a 9 million valuation and investors coming that was like a big big thing to me and that's when you know i think one gentleman with he also comes from a pretty big background i will not take any names out at this point of time so hmm. he was ready to write the check and he wanted to take a little stake in the company and depending upon whatever our share price was he was he was ready to invest so the deal was that you know that he would be pumping in money two months from you know we got a go ahead he actually gave us a go ahead So this is how it works, Andrew. When you're working like a complete bootstrap company, your vision is different. But when you're getting in money as a fund, your outlook and your your entire strategy for the company changes. You start you suddenly start thinking very big. Mm. So anticipating these funds are going to be coming into the bank. So which he was completely aware of. You know, with his buy-in, we we started initiating share transfers. We started making hiring. I mean, like we started sending out offer letters, and we had a grand party with all the employees which you know we had a big blast and then it was we were closing to the new year so i felt that you know i we were almost approaching it was like a week's time that the money would be coming and we were having active conversations and you know in fact we ended up spending all the cash at bank because you know that a lot of fund is coming and you have to spend more to you had all these investments that you had to make mm. i'm a hindu so i actually go to a temple and stuff so there is one religious temple very close to my house so i went there i offered prayers and right on when i was coming back to my city hyderabad i get a message saying that hey i'm ill and i'm not going to invest in the company <laughs> this this was i mean i i really really did not know how to react my wife was right beside me i was shocked because i just didn't know because we were out in the press we were out in the indian press the whole team was so jubilant and we made so many and we already rolled out six offers to people and there was no cash at bank i think okay is he really really serious you know am i going to sit and convince him or am i going to restructure everything but i was shocked i i didn't know how to react for a day and neither my neither my founder we just i was really really clueless so I think it took me a day and I felt you know I again tried connecting back with him but you know Andrew it's like this once a person has decided something I'm not a big believer that you know have to reconvince him and all that because I think everything else after that would be just trying to cover things up mm. so yeah I mean that was you know the worst phase in the worst investment in terms of time that I made because those 3 months I stopped looking out for customers 
I was more focused on building on the restructure of the organization and because there's so many things that and making all those Excel sheets, those projections and your valuation plans and all those things. Basic, you stop the basic business and you start focusing on other things. Mm. So I came back, there was no cash at bank. And then that is when I told, okay, you know what? I'll again start back. I'm not going to sit and convince him. And then that is when again I got, I wore my shoes, got into my car, started meeting as many people as possible. And there were existing customers, but you also needed additional money for all the money you spent. So, you know, I just wanted to get more and more customers. So, yeah, I mean, and then... So, so let me ask you, was your, was your way out of it to go and get customers or was your way out of it to go and try to find new investors or a combination of the both? No, I just hated the process of getting investors and I just, just stuck <laughs> to the route of getting customers. That was my biggest, biggest lesson. Mm. Interesting. At what point did you recover from this? Like you're, you're out pounding the pavement, getting the customers to try to internally generate the income and the cash flow that you need. And I'm sure those, you know, that first period of time was very tough. But then at one point, you could breathe easily that you'd recovered from it. What, how long did it take before you hit that point? See, basically the two problems over here, Andrew, one is, you know, getting the cash flow right back again. Yep. Next is the momentum that we created in the last one and a half years. The team is there. So what I did was, and the third problem is, it was already out in the press. And people knew that, you know, we were raising and, you know, all this was, there was so much happening. You know, now I didn't want to go employee to employee, talk about this and, you know, lower their morale or neither did I want to go out and tell people what has happened. In fact, I never told this publicly till the show, really. So, you know, all that I was actually doing was I was just getting customers and it took me like month, month and a half of 18 hours aggressive sales, finding more customers to get back on track just to breathe properly. It took me one and a half. But I never let my team know about it. Even whenever they asked, I just told them that, you know, it just got postponed. But I didn't want the morale to go down because, you know, as you're growing an organizer, it's good to be very transparent, but yep. I love to be transparent when the time comes. Moment right. is important to me. Exactly. And um, there is actually a Japanese story when they had a very big earthquake in Japan. Yep. And there was one gym and where, you know, all the shops, everything got, kind of got dismantled and they got broke. But the owner of a shop left a note on, you know, outside saying that let's get back to work tomorrow. That's what it is. Even if there's destruction, you have to get back to work. Mm. So if you were to list out the lessons that you learned from this experience, what are they? Sure. You know, I think I have five of them, you know, which, which I can share because I yep. don't like, I don't like, you know, making this too long. Yep. See, number one, whether it's winning the customer or getting an investment, you know, the deal is never done till the money really hits the bank. Mm -hmm. Till then, you're just assuming. Money needs to hit the bank. Yep. Number two, bounce back fast. The more you take time to let the suffering and the depression sink in you, the more you're letting yourself suffer. The faster you bounce back, the better it kind of gets for you. Number three, stop playing victim and I think start figuring out because shit happens. Yep. That's what it's all about. Number four would be cash is really not the king. Cash flow is always the king. So always have customers. Mm. And my last learning was majority of the startup crisis can easily be solved with sales. 
not with investment. <laughs> oh man, this is great stuff. I'm telling you. I mean, I feel sorry for your story, but what you've learned and what you've taught. Hey. I'm not sorry about it, but yeah. look at where we are right now because we kind of double, in fact, triple that turnover. We got to 200 customers. We got to 12 countries. Fantastic. So I'm in a way better, and I'm sure, you know, if I was valued at 9 million then, you can imagine where we should be now. Well, the other thing that you also, there's alternative histories that could happen because you could get an investor in and their vision of the company is different from yours and then you're fighting and struggling with an investor. Exactly. You know, I mean, there's all kinds of things. So. Fantastic. Exactly. Well, let me summarize what I took away from your story and let me know if I missed anything. Sure. You know, you said the deal is never done until the cash is in the bank. And yep. I have a story for you to tell you that it's actually the deal's never done until after, possibly days after the cash is in the bank. And this, I is, a, this, this is a funny story or it's tragic for me as a young guy, but I was 18 years old, I bought my first motorcycle. I rode it for you know months and then eventually I decided I was gonna sell it and I sold it to a guy who I knew in my little hometown. And so we went to the bank and he wrote a check or he had a check that he brought to the bank. And I said, bring that check to the bank. We're gonna give it to the bank. They're gonna get cash, $700. You're gonna hand me that $700 and I'm gonna sign over the ownership of this motorcycle and then you can drive away with it. And I, yeah. I didn't know much about banking, but I just understood that I needed to get the cash in my hands. So he came, he signed it, you know, he brought the check. I got the cash in my hand. I signed over the bike to him and then he left and I went home. Two days later, I got a call from the bank and they said, you need to bring that money back. Oh, I said, what? And they said, yes, under the state law, the person who wrote that check has three days to stop payment and they stop payment. Yeah. And so I had to go back to the bank. You know, I was just a young kid. I didn't know what to do. I, I went back to the bank and I gave him the money. And yeah. then I went to the guy and said, now give me my motorcycle back and, you know, sign over the, the title. And he wouldn't do it. And I ended up having to take him to court. And uh, it was just a long process. But I learned that it's, it's even more than just the money in the bank. <laughs> like you got, there's other, other ways. So really when you're, when you're raising money, when you're trying to, to get paid for things, it really is not over until after it's in the bank. The I second, can't agree more on true. Yeah, the second thing I took from it is, you know, the common saying that we say is that it's lonely at the top. And, you know, sometimes Correct. we look at that and say, you know, it's because, you know, super successful people, they just don't know who to trust or whatever. That, but really what you described is exactly why we say it's lonely at the top because yep. you as a founder and a visionary need to keep a positive, you know, mindset and you need to keep motivating the whole team to go in the right direction no matter what ups and downs comes your way. And that's just hard to do, you know, that just means that there's a small number of people that you can talk to and it's probably not the people that are in your company. The third thing I took away from it was, you know, we talk about in startup world about, you know, you need to have enough cash to fund your runway and we yep. say, you know, you need a long runway and yep. what people usually think about runway is they think about, you know, like having enough cash to take off. But I also call there's another type of runway and that's a runway in emotion or a runway in confidence. And there's only yeah. so much confidence that your employees are going to give to you until eventually, eventually they may lose confidence. And when they do, then it's over no matter, even if you had money in the bank. And the, the last thing I just want to remind myself of what my business partner in my coffee business says, he always says, sales solves everything. 
completely. <laughs> what are your thoughts on some of those takeaways that I got from your story? That's fantastic. I think we were spot on, Andrew. Yeah, yeah. No, there's a lot of great lessons in this. And I think the biggest lesson, and I, I really like what you said, because I'm a financial guy. And a lot of times we do say that cash is king. Yeah. But you said cash flow is king. And I think that that's, you know, really valuable because that tells you that you've got a recurring revenue rather than just cash in the bank doesn't tell you really anything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a hundred percent, you know, I cannot just agree more. And I really, if anyone is building a product or a service, if getting money is hard, they have to find creative ways to get recurring money. Because mm. even if you get cash from someone that drives very fast, but cash flow never, cash flow is recurring. Now, let me ask you one little question before we move on sure. to the next one. The question I ask is that in your case, you know, you had kind of a, a background of sales, you understood sales, but not every yeah. founder has that understanding. Like I'm going to go out and hit the pavement for the 12, 18 hours a day and get this back. What advice would you give someone who's not necessarily, you know, super skilled or super passionate about it, but yet they have to get those sales? Well, there are only two things. They either need to learn the craft or they have to have a founder who can sell. Because I think the first six months to one year, if the founders are not selling, they will never get the real essence of the market and understand the product market fit. It's sad. In fact, you know, very recently I made a video on, you know, how technical founders can also sell their certain steps. And there's so many books and, you know, uh, I think so many classes that they can take. See, they don't need to be perfect. If you are genuine and if your purpose is correct, people will understand. You don't need to be a stellar, you know, really cheesy sales guy. Right. I love this idea because what it can do is, let's just say that you're an engineer, you're a developer, you're an analyst, you know, and you're, you're not necessarily a salesperson. So you, yeah. you may shy away from sales, but if you can change your mindset on it by saying, it's not so much that you're trying to get sales, it's that you're trying to get the right product market fit. And in order okay. to test that, you've got to get the sales. And then it puts it in a little bit different light, which I love that. That's great feedback. All right. Based on what you've learned from this story and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? Yeah. See, I think whether you're building a product or whether you're building a services company, I know I'm repeating this, but make sure that you always have paying customers don't very quickly buy into the valuation game, projections and stuff. All those are great, but the reality is how many paying customers do you really have? The more you have, the more you grow in confidence and eventually you also grow in valuation. I find because, you know, a lot of young startups come and interact with me, they're stuck to the valuation game because they look at startups in the likes of Uber or maybe like a Swiggy in India or many other startups thinking that, you know, they can be the next big thing and they get in all the money. That's not always the right approach. You also need to live in the reality. Wow. And that is what really saved me too. Great. great Otherwise, advice. I would have been whitewashed by now. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Great. All right. Last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? It's only product performance. So, you know, the first one year, it was all about understanding the product market trade, doing a lot of sales. Second to third year was to refine all the understanding and getting a great team. You know, I, I'm really blessed to have a great team. 
and getting that act together. But now we are at a stage, we have got customers and stuff that we really have to enhance our product to a world-class level. It takes time and it takes learnings. And I think that's the number one goal. Fantastic. And that's a, that's a great lesson also to the listeners out there that, you know, stage one, product market fit, stage two, product performance. Yeah. If you reverse those, you're going to die. Oh, completely. <laughs> All right, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes, and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. As we end, Sampath, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers. But our listeners are learning to win as a result. And I also want to congratulate you for being one of the few brave ones to come on the show and share your worst investment ever and turn that worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for our audience? Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm not so big that I can give great advices, but you know, I can tell you whatever I learned in the last three years, the two things that I think every founder needs to remember I know this has been said a lot of times and have been abused in social media, but this is true. That is, you need to love what you do. You just need to love what you do because starting a business today is very easy, but making it successful, it's very hard. So start loving what you really do. My second advice is when you're building a business, always figure out the middle way. I call it the middle way. That is, you know, have the creativity element in your business and also focus on the commercial aspect. They both need to go hand in hand. Just being a very creative product company doesn't get you enough cash and you lose momentum. And if you only focus on cash, you know, there's no life in your business. So you need to find ways on how you blend these two together and bring a good business model out of it. Yeah, those are my two suggestions. Wow. Okay, we've now got a new episode that I'm going to tell every startup that comes to me. Listen yeah. to this before we talk any further. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of gold in this, a lot of value in this discussion. So I really want to thank you for it. And ladies and gentlemen, I think you know, we all gain from that. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our wealth. Fellow risk takers, I'll see you on the upside.